0: Morning, everyone. Good morning. Okay. All right. So, these last few weeks, we've been looking at some key topics that we want to understand to help us to be a healthy church, help us be a fruitful church that can be used of the Lord well in this area and that will truly be a blessing to everyone who's a part of it and um we talked about the gospel on our first week and we'll be coming back to the gospel today and specifically today what we're going to be talking about is the difference that the gospel should make to our daily christian life we're talking about applying the gospel and that's a phrase you may have heard uh quite a bit um I know for myself, when I first heard people talking about applying the gospel, it was a bit of an abstract concept for me that uh, was a bit frustrating for a while until uh, somebody put some flesh on the bones for me a little bit more and I, and I could see practically uh, what sort of a difference they, they really meant the gospel should be making uh, for our daily lives. And that's what I'm hoping to do today. We're going to think about what does it mean to apply the gospel. You'll remember some of you who were with us last Sunday, during the core values section, uh, I was talking about the fact that the gospel really is vital to even just daily Christian living, um, and that it is one of the things that makes the biggest difference in our Christian lives. Um, It fuels our Christian life and rightly orients it So today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. This is a passage that actually applies the gospel for us. Um, And I would argue that learning how to view life in light of the gospel, learning how to apply the gospel to your daily life, is one of the most important skills, if you want, want to say that one of the most important skills for a Christian to cultivate. Um, I'd argue there's nothing else that will impact your daily Christian life more than this. And similarly, there's no other skill that if it is well practiced throughout our church, uh, will more more positively impact the sort of community, the sort of culture, so to speak, that we have as a church. Okay, so let's consider this today. But before we can really dive into this passage, we need to think about some background. so first of all, what we're going to do, we're going to think just briefly about the bad news, right? I'm sure you've heard it said, many of you at least, that before we can rightly understand the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news. So So we're going to start by thinking a little bit about the bad news. Then we're going to look in this passage itself to, to what this passage highlights about the good news of the gospel. And then what this passage highlights about how we should apply that good news to life. So if we start by remembering the bad news, um, remember that though God created the world absolutely perfectly good and beautiful and harmonious in every, in every way, Mankind didn't take very long to rebel against him. We thought we knew better than God. We chose to reject what he said and to rule ourselves. And God had told Adam and Eve that if they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that day they would surely die. When we think about death, biblically, there's at least three ways we can think about it. There's spiritual death, right, which is our our, our separation from God, our, 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 our distance from God. There's physical death, and then there's eternal death. There's, there's hell. And certainly on that very day, Adam and Eve died spiritually, and they began to die physically. When they rebelled, they felt the immediate effect of what is called the fall. They immediately felt their shame, shame for their sin. That's why you see them sewing together fig leaves and hiding from God. The cost of their rebellion was the whole world being cursed. Everything immediately began to age and die. So many things that had been in wonderful harmony before. Now you see thorns. You see work becoming harder and less pleasant. You see the entire created order cursed. And saddest of all, as we look at this account in the beginning of Genesis, is that mankind has to leave God's presence. He's been able to enjoy The presence of God in the Garden of Eden in a wonderful, special way. And now he has to leave God's presence. And angels guard the way back into the Garden of Eden with flaming swords. Our relationship with God is broken. We are now his enemies. And to go back into the physical presence of a holy God as sinners would mean immediate physical death. When you jump forward in the storyline of the Bible, and you think just after the Exodus, just after God has rescued His people from slavery in Egypt, and you see this, this this time period where the Ten Commandments are given, and and God's people are in the Sinai Desert, right? Now, throughout this time, right, we've already talked about how God has rescued His people from slavery. God's showing a lot of kindness to His people. He hasn't just wiped out mankind. And yet, sin is still a very real issue in between God and man. And that's why God puts together the Mosaic Covenant. So that there can be a, 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 some sort of relationship between Him and His people, even as this big elephant in the room of our sin is still there, still present. Still a very real issue. And we see all these rules and regulations given in Exodus and Leviticus. Men will be circumcised. There will be a variety of dietary restrictions. Commandments will mark. Uh, the, key, the keeping of these commandments will mark God's people as being separate from the world and as being devoted to Him. And of course, there's many, many, many sacrifices put in place as offerings for sin. And ultimately, these sacrifices are never-ending. They're never-ending. At best, they can only address the sin problem between us and God partially and only for so long. A distance remains between us and God, and more sacrifices are always needed. If you think even about some very special occasions in the Old Testament, like God coming down onto Mount Sinai, It's awesome, and it's beautiful, and it's also terrifying. Imagine being the people of God there as you see this situation. Exodus 19 tells us about God coming down onto the top of Mount Sinai with thunders and lightnings and fire and smoke and a thick cloud on the mountain. There's loud trumpet blasts, and the mountain itself trembles and the text tells us the people are scared. And God has to say to Moses, look, I know you've already warned the people, but go down and tell them again, don't even touch the bottom of the mountain. If you touch the bottom of the mountain while I'm on the top of the mountain, you will die. Sin remains a massive issue between God and his people. Between a holy God and wicked, sinful people. And then what we see is that God gives very specific instructions, right? About the Ark of the Covenant that holds the, the Ten Commandments. And about the tabernacle, which was a special tent for worship. Basically, the Ark of the Covenant is kept within a special room in the tabernacle. And later on... You have the same, same sort of general idea happening with the temple. And the Ark of the Covenant is kept in this special room, the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And this is a room, this is where God is present in a more special way than He is anywhere else on planet Earth. And it's a, it's a wonderful, incredible thing for God's people, for, for, for the Israelites, that God is chosen to be, to be present amongst them in a way... That he isn't present anywhere else on earth. And yet, who gets to go into that room? Not the average person. Just the high priest with very special uh, rituals and, 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 and very special limitations to what must be done and how it must be done, etc., etc. And only once a year. And now that brings us to Hebrews 10. Let's read this passage together and consider the good news that it tells us about and how we can apply that good news to our lives. Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 25, therefore brothers, Some of you might remember that I preached from the last two verses of this passage about a year ago. Um, But what I want to highlight, especially today, is verses um, 19 through 23. What is the good news of this passage? What is the good news that this passage tells us about? Well, first of all, there's the good news that Jesus has done everything necessary to pay the full penalty for our sins and to give us full access to God forever. We see that in verses 19 to 20. Jesus has done everything necessary to pay the full penalty for our sins and to give us full access to God forever. This passage says we have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy of holies, in the temple, in the tabernacle, these places that that nobody except the high priest could enter once a year. We have confidence to come into the very presence of God. And how is it so? What do we mean by confidence? Well, first of all, here's an illustration of what it does not mean. I saw on Facebook this week that somebody I know A pastor I know in the States, he was in hospital for something quite serious, and he was only allowed one visitor at a time. But his teenage son uh, wasn't okay with the fact that only his wife could see him. And so what he actually did is he dressed up smartly, uh, made himself look quite professional, and with a cell phone, uh, holding a cell phone to his ear like he was very busy on an important conversation, he just very confidently walked and had everybody uh, just assume, okay, this is, this is somebody who works here in the hospital going about their business. Uh, he should be here, right? So nobody stopped him, and he was able to go visit his dad. His dad thought it was quite funny um, how his son got away with that and touched by his son's efforts to, uh, to see him, right? But this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the sort of thing where it's like, okay, just pump yourself up a little bit and give it your all, right? We're not talking about that sort of confidence. We're talking about confidence that has substantive grounds, solid reasons, an undeniable case for access to be granted. We're talking about the sort of access that could be checked and rechecked, and it would always be granted. It could be analyzed from every angle. It is thorough, total, absolute, authoritative. We have solid grounds for being able to confidently enter into God's presence. What gives us this right, this confidence? What are the grounds we have to enter into the holy place? Verse 19, we enter by the blood of Jesus. We enter by the blood of Jesus. And that is the once for all perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Look back with me a few verses earlier in chapter 10 had to see what this is referring to. 10 verse 10 says, we have been sanctified, right? That is set apart for God, set apart as holy. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. 10 verse 12. When Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and sitting down here, by the way, does so he sits down because his work is completed, and he sits down in the seat of honor. At God's right hand, because He had completed His work perfectly and succeeded fully. Ten, verse fourteen: For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews ten seventeen goes on to tell us that because of Jesus' sacrifice, God says, verse seventeen. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Now, of course, the all-knowing God remembers. Of course He remembers. But He will no longer hold our sins as evidence against us. They have been wiped clean from our record. 10 verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Right? In the Old Testament, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice is never fully enough. Never really fully bridging the gap. Never bridging it permanently. And here God says, no more sacrifices necessary. Jesus has paid it all. Forever. The author of Hebrews says it another way here in the next verse, verse 20. What gives us this right, this confidence? What are the grounds we have to enter the holy place? Verse 19, we enter by the blood of Jesus. And we enter, verse 20, by the new and living way Jesus opened to God through the curtain, through His flesh. What are we talking about here? What we're talking about is that the Holy of Holies, that special room in the tabernacle, that special room in the temple, it was walled off, so to speak, by a thick curtain, a thick curtain from ground to ceiling. Well, it's top of the tent, top of the temple, okay? A big, heavy curtain. And the imagery, imagery used here is amazing. The closest the average person could get to God before would be to be on the outside of that curtain. Just knowing there on the other side is God. There always remained this huge, thick, heavy curtain that, that, that reminded them that you can get so close to God only and no further and you remember this detail from the Gospel accounts as Jesus is on the cross and dying. It says, Mark 15, 37. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 38. And the, t- and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. As Jesus died, he tore open the curtain. As Jesus died, he opened a way for us into the very presence of God. Because of Jesus, we can go into the Holy place. We can go into the the very presence of God because of his death on the cross. Before, the sacrificial system only resolved our sin problem so much and only for so long. But now, in Jesus, He has resolved the sin problem fully. Once and for all, He has granted us full access to the Father forever. What else is good news in this passage? Down in verse 21, we see, We can have confidence to enter the holy place because Jesus cares. He is eager to hear our struggles and to help us. That's what's being spoken of when it says in verse 21 that we have a great priest. This is referring back to an earlier section of Hebrews. And I'm going to pick out a few highlights to show you the author's main arguments about why it is such good news that we have Jesus as a great high priest. Back in Hebrews 4 verse 15 it says... For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay? What was a priest's job? A priest's job was to mediate between God and man. To mediate between God and man. And so it's helpful then that the one representing us to God actually can empathize can actually understand yes, life can be difficult on earth yes, temptations can be strong who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin Jesus never sinned himself but a point that I remember vividly from my theology classes is that There's a sense in which he has experienced temptation in a way we never have. Because ultimately, you only experience the full force of the temptation if you never give in to it. Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.16 says then, Let us then with confidence draw near, Right? Recognize that language? With confidence, let's draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus knows that the Christian life can be very difficult. And He sympathizes with us. And He shows us mercy and gives us grace. The grace that we need to live the Christian life, to overcome temptations, to keep persevering, to keep honoring God, even in difficult situations. He is a compassionate and understanding high priest. Another, another highlight uh, that the, from what the author of Hebrews has to tell us about Jesus as a high priest, Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Obviously, human priests only live so long, right? Verse 24, But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What the author of Hebrews is telling us here, basically, is that forever and ever, Jesus is going to represent us to God. We have a never-dying, always-present intercessor and advocate. He's praying for us. He's defending us. When accusations come against us from, from, from the devil, look at the sin and so-and-so's life. He should not be allowed into your presence. Look at what he's done. Remember this thing that he done, that he's done. Jesus is always present to say yes, and I've offered my own body for that sin, and it is paid for. He always lives to represent us. So Jesus gives us full access to God forever, and he understands and cares. And promises us the help we need to live the Christian life. So therefore right finally how do we apply this? What sort of a difference practically should this make in our lives? Well, the passage tells us tells us first of all it says draw near draw near that's verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Let us draw near. What do we mean by drawing near? I think it's very widespread. It has to do with living out relational closeness with God. Living out a relational closeness with God. And that's not just about the what that we do, it's also about the how the attitude we do it with, the confidence we do it with. We've been reconciled with God and because of what Jesus has accomplished, we can be relationally near to Him. He is our Father and we are adopted as His children. And how then should that be expressed? What does it look like? Here are a few examples. When we read the Bible, we are reading God's Word. And we can have an expectation that he's going to help us to understand it. He's going to teach us and guide us and change us through it. Right? Because he is our Father. We're his children. When we pray, we should pray believing that God hears us and is glad to hear from us. We're not alienated from God anymore, we're not just strangers calling out, trying to get his attention. We're his children. As a result, it makes sense that we would pray more often. We would pray with more honesty. We would pray with more comfortability, not falling over ourselves in formality and tiptoeing on eggshells. Be able to come to our Father and speak honestly and from the heart. When you're going through a difficult time, You ask God to make His nearness clear to you, that relational closeness evident to you. And you can ask that believing that He will, you can ask Him to help you trust Him. And to give you that peace that passes all understanding. As you rest in His plan and believe from the heart that it really is for your good. When you've sinned, you don't avoid time with God. you run to God for mercy, confident that He will forgive you. Brothers and sisters, a proper understanding of the gospel means that we can go to God when we've sinned, and we can both in the same prayer, we can be praying, oh, please forgive me for the sin, and I thank you that you do. And I thank you that Jesus has paid for the sin. And you've forgiven it completely. And as a result, we're still in relationship. We're still close. When you're facing temptation, you pray for help. Believing exactly what Hebrews tells us. That, that Jesus does care. And Jesus does understand. And Jesus does want to help. And He will help. Worship. You have the confidence to worship even after a bad week. You know that you've never never approached God on the basis of how well you did this week reading your Bible and how much money you put in the offering plate and how hard you worked at work and how many people you shared the gospel with. That's never been the basis upon which God has accepted you. We come to God. And you worship Him for what Jesus has done for you and how Jesus has bridged the gap for you and taken care of the sin that separated you from God. Choosing to trust and depend. That's part of drawing near. Choosing to trust God and depend on Him even when life is hard. You're choosing that because you believe what the Bible says about his love for you, about his care for you, about how he works through every detail. What is an evil conscience in this context? Look down again at verse uh, 22, right? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I think an evil conscience here is a conscience that tells you that you can't draw near to God. A conscience that tells you you can't draw near to God, even though Jesus has done all that He's done. Is feeling like you have to do one, two, three before you can approach God. Okay, let me let me just have one or two better days, and then. Then I'll talk to God about this situation. Doubting He cares. Doubting He's for you. Doubting He will forgive you. Doubting He still loves you. How do we apply the good news that Jesus has paid it all forever? Verse 23. Hold fast the confession of of our hope. Hold fast the confession of our hope. We talked at the Farunkuah GC the other night about how hope in the Bible is not just wishful thinking. Rather, it, yes, it's something not seen, it's something not tangible and expressed, uh, experienced fully right now. But even though it's something that's future, it's something that we are confident and sure will happen because God has promised so. And because of that, there's not just a certainty, but there's an anticipation as you wait for it to be fulfilled. It is guaranteed. So what does it mean then to hold fast to our confession of hope? It means to hold on tightly and to not let go. Brothers and sisters, sometimes it really does look like what God has promised could not possibly be true. Everything I see with my own eyes, everything I experience in my life says differently. This broken, fallen world is, is all I can see, all I can experience. And yet, I can hold on to truths like the fact that God is conforming me to the image of His Son and that Jesus is coming back. And that every wrong will be made right and that one day we really will be able to say as Paul said right that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glories that will be revealed don't stop believing, and don't stop living as you should in light of that future that God has promised the author of Hebrews encourages us gives us one more reason Verse 23b, one more reason to hold fast to our hope. He who promised is faithful. You're thinking about the future? He who promised is faithful. He's going to keep his promises. Then lastly, in verses 24 and 25, we see another way we should be applying and living out this good news and that is that we should spur on one another to love and good deeds. We should be encouraging one another in the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not intended to be lived out solo. We are family in Christ. We need the help of others, and God calls us to be of help to others also. We need help others. The, the imagery that... that um. The author of Hebrews moves on to use here is that of a race, right? We need to help one another keep running this race, this marathon race, and in context, certainly um, that especially includes by reminding them of the very truths we've been talking about here, by reminding one another that we have access to God, that Jesus is secured. And that is still true even if we're going through a bad patch. It's still true even if we've got skeletons in our closet that are very difficult for us to tell others about. Sins that we've committed in the past or things that we're struggling with uh, on an ongoing basis. We need to encourage one another with the fact that if we go to Jesus looking for help, He cares and He will help. And we need to remind one another of the hope we have, of these promises God has made and these promises He will keep. We need to not allow one another to beat ourselves up or to distance ourselves from God while we try and work our way back to Him as if that is the basis of our relationship with Him. We need to not allow one another to despair and to fear and to give up hope. We need to speak truth into each other's lives, remind one another of the good news. And this is the sort of community we want to be, the sort of culture we want to have as a church. We want to be the sort of community that is shaped by these truths, if someone has full access to God himself because of Jesus, despite their past sin, despite their current struggles, then that person certainly is fully a part of this church family. This should be a safe place, brothers and sisters, to be a sinner because we are all great sinners. And every believer can say, right? Right? I have a greater Savior. My sin is not too much for Him. We're all sinners resting in grace and seeking to grow together. We want to be a gospel community as a church, a community of grace and hope. Amen. Let me pray. Our Lord and God, I pray that you'll help us to be people who, down to every little detail, live in light of the truths of the gospel. God, Jesus has paid it all forever, once for all. He has secured our full access to you. So God, help us. Help us to believe, no matter how difficult our circumstances No matter how discouraged we are by our failures, to remember that Jesus has made us right with you and that we are right with you, not because of our performance, not because of our gifts, not because of anything we've given you or hope to give you, but only, only and fully because of what Jesus has done. God, there's so much peace to be found in that. There's so much relief, there's so much joy. God, there should then also be so much confidence in terms of how we interact with you. In every way, in our prayers, as we depend on you, as we seek your guidance, as we come to you yet again for help, whether that's help with our sin or provision for our daily needs, you're our Father. And I pray that from our hearts we would cry out, as the Bible tells us, Cry out, Abba, Father. Because these are not just abstract out there truths. They're real. You have adopted us as your children. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. 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 God, help us to live out these truths in our own lives. And to... Lord be a true life-giving encouragement to one another. God, I pray that this church would be a wonderful environment of grace. A safe place to be a struggling sinner who needs grace. God, that is that is the only that's the only place we we can be as a church. We have to we have to remember that. God help us to remember that. That that is our only hope. Grace is our only hope. So help us to embrace it and to live in light of it always. And use us in one, another's, in one another's lives. And help us to run this race and to run it all the way to the end. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he does give us the help we need. That he hears us, that he cares. That he's a merciful high priest. He gives us all the grace that we need pray this in his name for his glory amen